1: The
2: Soundtrack Show, with David W. Collins, is about to begin. In Star Wars, composer John Williams and director George Lucas struck the perfect balance between new and old. Between hearkening back to a romantic orchestral tradition, to looking forward with new themes and new melodic material. While the brilliant end result of the score has been obvious for decades for those of us in the audience, It took weeks and weeks of critical discussion and decision-making on the part of the film's creators. This is The Soundtrack Show.
1: Fortunately, Lucas was able to recruit one of the industry's most accomplished composers, John Williams. Williams had recently won an Oscar for Steven Spielberg's Jaws, and his resume included countless film and television scores, including music for the original Lost in Space television series. I do remember George talking about the fact that what we were gonna see in the film represents worlds that we hadn't seen but that the music should give us some kind of an emotional anchor. We heard a a romantic melody for Princess Leia. We heard uh, bellicose music for the battle scenes. And some very heavy declamatory thing for Darth Vader.
2: Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're continuing our musical look at Star Wars from 1977, written and directed by George Lucas, with music composed by John Williams. That's right, we are giving Star Wars the royal treatment here on The Soundtrack Show, and for good reason. The American Film Institute calls Williams' score for Star Wars, quote, the most influential film score of all time. We've spent a lot of time over the last few episodes discussing why that is. Well, today, we're gonna have some fun looking at some detailed work in the score, and we're going to discuss how the score was, or wasn't, shaped by looking at some music that didn't make the final cut. Let's start with some quotes from editor Paul Hirsch and sound designer Ben Burtt, regarding music that didn't make the final edit of the film. This is from Jonathan Rinsler's making of Star Wars book from 2007, quote, On the editorial front, Lucas and Hirsch were still tweaking the film. We constantly made changes to the movie, Hirsch says. It had made things difficult for Johnny Williams because he'd been obliged to score the picture before it was locked. He'd even started writing music before we'd shot second unit. For those of you that don't know, second unit is often pickup shots or or inserts that are, are directed simultaneously to the main action with the actors. Luckily, Our music editor, Ken Wanberg, was great in tailoring what had been designed for one thing to fit with another thing. He cut it and made it fit. Here's another quote. There was always this seesawing back and forth between the music and the sound effects, Ben Burt says. Music was dropped out of two places in the film. Initially, there was a lot more music when R2-D2 gets ambushed by the Jawas. You'll remember we played that in the last episode and there was no music in it. Ben Burt goes on. But the scene played better without any music at all. There was also music originally over the sequence of the Dianoga. The Dianoga is the monster inside the trash compactor, also something we played last episode that had no music in it. Again, Ben Burtz says, it was more frightening and suspenseful without the music. End quote. So as I said, in the last episode, we talked about this a little bit, and we even played some film examples But what's interesting to note here is that the film wasn't completely finished when Williams scored it in March of 1977. They were tweaking it through April of that year. So shots were still being inserted. Timing was still being changed. So it fell to Williams' longtime music editor, Ken Wanberg, to help fit those changes into updated cuts of the movie. And remember, this was all done with mag tape back then. Not on computers a very labor-intensive and long process that involved wax pencils and cutting blocks and blades and tape. A very different analog world from the one that we're accustomed to today. It's almost strange and alien to think about in the digital age. So, some scenes changed from when Williams scored them in March. We know that now. But even then, there was this question. This question of where to place music and where not to place music. We had this discussion when we were talking about the spotting process in Jaws. Now again, it seems obvious in hindsight. I mean, we've been been looking at Star Wars for over 40 years. But when you're creating these things, it's anything but obvious. Ultimately, they decided to remove music from two sections. And before I play those, I want to read a recent email from Tyler, uh, who had this to say. As a feature documentary editor, which is what he is, Oscar-nominated feature documentary editor, music is always a question. It's an interesting challenge to decide on a musical palette that fits the verite and overall language of a film, let alone pick a composer or license tracks along the way. Is it appropriate to enhance real life with subtle drones or instrumentation, or is it better to have silence? Is it better to have a montage with a well-known tune, or would that run the risk of being too heavy-handed? As opposed to a scripted narrative, pacing becomes clearer in a documentary once a rough cut is reached, and music starts to be a very welcome guide in that regard. It's a different process, but there are so many parallels with narrative features. If you're ever looking for ideas on future episodes, I'd love to hear your take on music and documentary filmmaking. Really, this has become my favorite podcast, and I'm looking forward to future episodes. Thanks again, Tyler. Thank you so much, Tyler, and what a fascinating insight that you provide, especially as a documentary, uh, feature documentary editor, and George Lucas, who was obsessed with documentary film and shot Star Wars in a documentary style, I think struggled with a lot of these same questions, and that's what this episode really is about, and what Paul Hirsch, the editor of Star Wars, and Ben Burt's quotes that I just read are all about, and the experiences that you mentioned in your email, uh, those have been my experiences as well. When do you guide the audience emotionally? Versus letting the scene play without music. Is there a right or wrong answer? Ultimately, you just have to go with your gut as a creative. And in my experience, oftentimes we'll have on the mix stage a surplus of music. And you end up pulling back a little bit when you're doing the final mix, just here and there. It seems like this was the case with Star Wars as well. So, let's take a listen again to the scene of R2 going alone through the canyon on Tatooine, moments before he's ambushed by the Jawas. With no music, this is the scene, as we remember it. Again, no music here. We get to the jump scare, and then once R2 falls over and the Jawas reveal themselves, then the music cuts in. But it's a music edit that ends up picking up right as you get to the sand crawl. You can actually hear a music edit. But now, what I'm going to do, using the music from the 1997 Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope 2 CD Special Edition soundtrack. Wow, that was a lot to get through. I'm going to start from the end of this scene, where we know the music edit was, where we clearly hear a music edit as we're in front of the sandcrawler, and I'm just going to peel it back. I'm going to work backwards. And what we'll hear will give us a rough idea of how this music was scored initially, as I've gone ahead and mixed it in with the film as it was released with no music. This should be an interesting experiment. So we're going to start from when uh, 3PO says, hey, over here, and then it wipes to R2 in the canyon. Here it comes. Kind of mischievous and playful, just kind of like bouncing along. <laughs>
0: So I like Oh,
2: So now we're back to where it is in the film, uh, past the music edit there. Now that's so interesting. A couple of things. I love how it just kind of bounces along at the top, just very kind of quietly. Here, I'll, I'll just play this a little bit now that you've heard it. And as we start to get glimpses of the Jawas, it starts to really develop into the theme. Right about here. And then right as they speak for the first time, you actually hear the, the theme start. Right here. So he introduces them much earlier in the original cut. And what's interesting is that this scare moment happens mid-melody. Listen to this.
0: We-ha!
2: And we know this is true because there's a sync point. John Williams actually Mickey Mouse's and grabs the, the fall right here. Listen to this. Booyah. So that was a wonderful sync point for me to know that I was right on target here when I just peeled the music back from where where the edit was. It's really interesting to hear those those sync points like that. So the question I have for you is this. What did that music do to that scene? How did it make you feel? How did it make you feel when you experienced it without the music? Well, my take on it is similar to that of Ben Burtz. The tension is given away when the music is present. Without the music, we don't really know what this threat is. We're kind of left to our own conclusions, our own fears. That feeling you get when you're walking to your car alone late at night. Without music, we don't know how scary these creatures are or aren't. But with music, the filmmakers are kind of showing us their hand. The Jawas are are curious, relatively harmless scavengers. But maybe we don't need to know that until after we've had a good scare. The other scene that I'd like to hear is the trash compactor scene. Now, this scene goes on for a while and it has no music until the compactor is threatening to crush our heroes and we cut away to the hiding droids. And we listened to this last time, so I won't play that for you again. But, again, working backwards, I restored the scene with the available cue from the 1997 Special Edition soundtrack so that we can get an idea of how it originally sounded before they made the decision to cut the music. Also, I found the sync points for the Dianoga sequence uh, and was able to line those up pretty clearly. So let's take a listen, starting from when they first jump in and we have the whole Dianoga sequence. We're going to take a listen to this for a while. Here we go. Absolutely, Your Worship. Look, I had everything under control, so you let us down here. You know, it's
0: not going to take them long to figure out what happened to us.
2: could be worse. Here it is. It's worse. There's something
1: alive in here. That's your imagination. Something just moved past my leg.
2: Look. Did you see that? Why? the end of that first queue. I don't
0: know! Just let go of me and disappear!
2: Now here comes the entrance of the <laughs> trash compactor queue. comes a little earlier than what we're familiar with. bad feeling about this. Up again in the film. Hey, ah, <laughs> Vader's theme. Look, there. So interesting, so interesting. I mean, you've got first of all this mischievous music playing here under the Dianoga, and I even love when the you in the scene where the Dianoga pops his head up and looks left and right, the little one-eyed creature you get this little Mickey mousing moment right here. You hear that, that little percussion like it's just, it's just so interesting. Um, And all of those ducks in volume, by the way, those are all in the queue. All I did was I set the level of the movie as it exists. And I set the level of the queue and I just let it play. I didn't manipulate it at all. So all of those swells and dynamics, that was all John Williams and was really critical to figuring out kind of how to sync this up. But so interesting. I mean, that was a lot of music that was omitted. So as we know, the scene in the final movie only plays with music at the very end. Nothing but the documentary-style sound effects of the compactor and the water and the sewage and the, the Dianoga roars and the metal. They must have felt, the filmmakers must have felt, that the scene just played better with sound effects and dialogue only. So we really hear the weight of the mechanical walls closing in. Also, that music does have a playful quality to it that maybe isn't needed. Or maybe it's just not adding to the scene. Or maybe we just need to sit with the character's fear, as we did with R2 in the Desert Canyon, and let that tension build a bit more slowly than the start of those music cues allowed in the final film. Also, we just had a huge shootout in the detention center with a ton of music, ton of sound effects, blasters, explosions. Maybe we should have a bit of a down moment musically where we can just kind of live in the world a bit. These are just my opinions, but whatever the reason, the filmmakers ultimately decided that the film played better without music in these two spots. I agree. And it makes the music that we are treated to that much more impactful. It's fun to speculate about this stuff, it really is, and I can tell you from first-hand experience at the mixing desk, when finaling a project, that these debates happen all the way up to the end. Where to put music, where not to put music, how does it make you feel, what does it do emotionally and stylistically to the story and to the characters? Sometimes it adds magic to a scene, and sometimes it's more intrusive than helpful and actually takes away the power of some of the other musical scenes. Someone, please, what's the right answer? Like Tyler's email. Well, is there ever a right answer? I mean, this is all subjective, of course, but I'd be curious to know what you think, as always. So let us know on social media or via email by writing to us at the soundtrack show at howstuffworks.com. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. One of the things that John Williams does extremely well is that he uses the orchestra to comment on or describe the action. There are two examples of him sort of painting with music or or even storytelling with music, as I call it, early on in the film. The first is the introduction of the Tuscan Raiders or the Sand People. These are orchestral sounds that are really unique to this score. I mean, to this moment. What are we supposed to know immediately when we hear this? These beings, these Tusken Raiders, these sand people, they're wild. Dangerous. Unlike the Jawas, these creatures are the real local threat. It's dangerous out there in the wild, and John Williams lets us know that in under a minute of music. We hear kettle drums, log drums, big low brass effects in the strings. I mean, he's pulling out so many tricks to effectively communicate a wild, primitive danger to us. Another moment that I really like in the film is what I refer to as travel music. In the first half of the film, we see Luke traveling on his land speeder a few times. At each time, we hear this kind of bouncy travel horn music. William's giving us driving music as Luke speeds along through the desert. The first time we hear it is when Luke and Threepio set out early in the morning to go search for R2, who, by the way, had just cleverly tricked Luke into removing his restraining bolt the day before, and has run off into the desert searching for an Obi-Wan Kenobi to fulfill his secret mission. One that we, as the audience, are starting to piece together. The music is exciting, it's up-tempo. Let's take a listen. he immediately is targeted by the sand people. We hear that wonderful music. And of course, as we know, by the time Luke realizes he's been targeted, they get the jump on him. But moving on, the next time we hear this speeder travel music is when Obi-Wan, Luke, and the droids are on their way to Mos Eisley. Luke has just experienced deep personal loss, the destruction of his home, the death of the only family he's ever known. And with nothing to lose and his worst fears already realized... He goes with Obi-Wan to become a Jedi Knight, like his father before him. We immediately wipe to the group traveling via speeder. Let's listen. Here they are traveling and suddenly our first big Tatooine city is in view. Ah, greeted by a fanfare of trumpets. Now listen to how the speeder music changes. Now that we're heading into a city filled with strange creatures and species. As well as the danger of gangsters and the empire lurking in the shadows. Ah, shadows of the empire. See what I did there? Finally, they're stopped by stormtroopers, and Obi does his mind trip. Once that's done, the third and final piece of speeder music plays at a slow tempo as our cast of characters complete their micro-journey to the threshold of adventure via the Mos Eisley Cantina. music slows down as he parks and departs from their speeder. I love that example. I love how we get a sense of adventure, of travel, of slight montage. Even though montage is not really found in Star Wars as much as cross-cutting between narratives is, we still feel like we've gone from point A to point B to point C. The music and the editing are hugely responsible for this feeling giving the beginning of the film, in a desert wasteland of a planet, a much-welcomed sense of momentum and speed. You know, before we leave Tatooine on the soundtrack show, I want to cover one last piece of music that can only be found on the special edition soundtrack. This is an alternate cue, and like our deleted music from the scenes we discussed earlier, it offers us a glimpse of what could have been. It involves that famous, music-oriented moment that we discussed on the last episode where Luke stares off into the binary sunset. Before we had the music that we are now so familiar with, that wonderful, lush treatment of the Force theme, John Williams had written a very different version. I'm going to play it in a second, but I want to take a moment to discuss one of the questions that I'm asked pretty frequently about more modern film scores. Why aren't there more memorable melodies, themes that we can hum as we walk out the movie theater door? Well, there are a number of reasons, like temp scores or modern tastes and melodic or catchy scores falling in and out of fashion. But a real reason why melodies or musical moments, like the one featured in The Binary Sunset, are somewhat scarce in modern movies is time. Long melodies, long melodies, especially like Obi-Wan's Force Melody, take a lot of movie time, a lot of footage to actually express in their entirety. Movies today move very, very fast. We take in information very fast by comparison to 1977. Because of this, it takes a conscientious, musically motivated and centered director to provide those moments in their work. I mean, it did back then as well, but it's especially true today. One of the biggest reasons why I discussed George Lucas for so long in the introductory episode to Star Wars is that Lucas, along with Spielberg, provided the platform, the launch pad, for John Williams to soar. It was the right composer, with the right movies and the right directors recognizing his talent and their collective taste. The binary sunset is a case in point. Lucas gives Williams a huge opportunity to score a giant, musically-driven scene. What Williams gives Lucas, after being the king of disaster movies like The Poseidon Adventure, Earthquake, and even Jaws, is a fashionably dark orchestral treatment at first. Let's take a listen to his first attempt at the binary sunset. Wow. So different. And notice that the theme is wall-to-wall, Dies Irae. da na 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 I mean, the sun is setting on that homestead. It won't be there in 24 hours. It's doom and gloom meets mid-70s thrillers meets science fiction. This piece feels more like Night Search Ben Gardner's boat from Jaws than what we associate with Star Wars. Star Wars began recording its score at Anvil Studios in Denham, England, on Saturday, March 5th, 1977. Day two was the following Tuesday, March 8th of 1977. This piece was recorded at the very end of that day, and after only two takes, they called it for the day and moved on. Clearly, there was some discussion about whether or not it worked. Ultimately, George Lucas told him to go back and rewrite it and consider using Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme, which was recorded about a week later. So we know that George Lucas is the one who told him to go for it. What do I mean by that? He told him to go ahead and be old-fashioned. He dared all of us to be old-fashioned. He dared all of us to be what would be considered at that time corny. Give us a sweeping, emotional, and hopeful moment, and dare to believe that it will ultimately be received, free of cynicism or irony, by us, the movie-going audience. It turns out he was right, and what Williams came back with a week later and rescored still gives us chills over four decades later. This decision to get to the final product, to reject that first version, and replace it with what we ultimately got, is one of the most important musical decisions in the history of movies. That may sound like hyperbole when I say this on this show, but I want you to consider this. Really consider this, because I actually believe what I'm saying here. By being bold, by deciding to go for the optimistic, old-fashioned feel, Lucas and Williams not only defined how this movie was going to work on an emotional level, but allowed countless films after Star Wars to do the same. Without this kind of score, and I would also include Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind scores in this as well, but really with this score, Star Wars, Williams and Lucas paved the way for very old-fashioned emotional, romantic scores for Empire and Jedi, Raiders of the Lost Ark and its Indiana Jones sequels, and Donner's Superman movies, E.T., Back to the Future, the Star Trek movie franchise, and its next generation TV spin-offs, every movie that Spielberg and Williams did, and countless, countless others that use this style of music in its film score. You can trace all of those post-77 movies back to this moment and this decision to remove the doom and gloom emphasis. It's still there with a little DSRA in this movie but to remove that emphasis in favor of feel-good melody. Give us nostalgia. Give us comfortable emotional ground while we're inhabiting this galaxy far, far away that we're not familiar with. Give us the full romantic emotion of a symphony orchestra. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment.
1: And now, back to the Soundtrack Show. In March 1977, John Williams led the London Symphony Orchestra in the performance of the Star Wars soundtrack. Recorded over 12 days, it was a sweeping symphonic masterpiece, one of the few things to actually exceed Lucas's expectations.
2: To hear Johnny play the music for the first time is a thrill beyond anything I can describe.
1: It was my first opportunity to work with the London Symphony Orchestra, which was a thrill to me. Spread five. I'm going in. Like Star Wars itself, the music in the film defied conventional wisdom. At a time when disco was burning up the charts, having a traditional symphonic
2: soundtrack was another huge risk on Lucas's part. He really understood the genre that I was talking about. It's a group of composers that weren't that well-looked upon in the 70s. There was a different attitude toward the old-fashioned symphonic the scores. And I had a lot of music in the movie. So I want to wrap up our look at the music to Star Wars in two ways. The first is a film commentary, which is coming up in the next couple of episodes. But I also want to wrap up by just giving you a few stats. First, let's chat about themes. I have a magical little spreadsheet that I whipped up years ago called my Star Wars theme tracker, where I document every audible appearance of a theme in Star Wars. Though many have gone on to do this in excruciating detail, it was something I did years ago when I started podcasting about music. So let's go ahead and talk about themes by the numbers. First, just a disclaimer on how this works. I don't count every single instance that you audibly hear the melody in my tracker. As oftentimes you'll hear it stated twice in a row, three times in a row, without a break. For example, I count the Rebel fanfare only once during the TIE Fighter attack, as that whole piece is based around it. But you actually hear that melody, that short little clip, ba ba da ba ba You hear that melody over and over and over again. The same is true with The Throne Room. You hear the Force theme twice in a row, but really, it's just one big musical moment. For me, in order to count it, something else has to happen in between. A different dramatic moment in the film that made Lucas and Williams want to hit us with a theme again. So, here we go. I'll just break down some of the main themes. Luke's theme, a.k.a. the main Star Wars title. Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme, a.k.a. the Force theme. Princess Leia's theme, Darth Vader's theme, or the theme for the Empire, and the rebel fanfare. Let's start with Luke's theme, the main title. We hear it 17 times in the movie. Some of these are really obvious. Obviously, we hear it in the main title, but we hear it when Luke is introduced for the first time at the moisture farm. We hear it when Owen and Beru are chatting with him at the dinner table. We hear it at night when he's looking for R2. We hear it right as he sold his speeder. We hear it when they take over the control room as they're in disguise, when they're uh, when he goes to rescue Leia, when he swings over the chasm, of course in the Battle of Yavin, and of course in the end credits. That's just a few examples of where we hear it. And actually, of that 17 times, one of them was not actually cut into the film, but you can hear it on the soundtrack album. Vader's theme, we also hear 17 times. The first time we hear it is as action music in the blockade runner battle. We hear it when the droids escape in the pod. We hear it when Princess Leia is brought before Darth Vader for the first time. When the stormtroopers are in the desert, we hear it. Although in the special edition, that's been replaced with Death Star music, but I still counted it. Um, We hear it when Obi-Wan is telling the story of how Luke's father died. We hear it all throughout the movie. We hear it all the way through the Battle of Yavin. We hear it in the shootout in the cell bay, in the hallway shootout. So 17 times, and it's interesting to note two things about Vader's theme. One, it appears quite a bit when Vader isn't on screen, and a lot over stormtroopers, as if they're an extension of Vader and his power. It's no wonder that the 501st Legion, the biggest Star Wars fan costuming group in the world, refers to the Legion as Vader's fist. The second interesting thing here is that it appears just as many times as Luke's theme, almost even though it's a shorter theme and isn't as memorable, obviously, as it doesn't appear in future uh, installments of Star Wars. So even in spite of that, there's still a real balance of light side and dark side in this film. The Rebel fanfare follows just behind this with 13 appearances in the film. (laughs) You get it in the main title when you first see the blockade runner. You get it in the Imperial attack. Uh, you you get it when uh, Luke is looking for the droids in the garage. You get it when the Millennium Falcon's coming into the Death Star hangar. You get a huge statement of it then. Of course in the TIE fighter attack, the Battle of Yavin, and of course in the end credits you get it just beautifully there. Obviously this is a very important part of the first film as it's a catch-all melody for our heroes when they're all together. It's electric. It's exciting. And it's also nice and short, makes it very easy for a composer or an editor to insert. Princess Leia's theme appears nine times in this movie. We've talked about a few of them, when she's inserting the plans into R2 and she's pulling down her hood and and then, of course, the big hologram moments. You hear it as they're swinging over the chasm. You hear it, uh, the huge, huge statement of it when Obi Wan dies. That's all Leia's theme. And then, of course, you hear it stated beautifully in the end title. But there's something really interesting and important to know about Leia's theme it is a favorite of John Williams, it's the only concert piece to come out of this film. And interestingly enough, if you look at the session notes from this movie, you find that great care was taken in getting this performance just right. Most of the cues in the movie were recorded on the recording stage two, three, or maybe four times in terms of take numbers, up to four different takes that they would then select from as the performances improved and as Williams rehearsed the orchestra and addressed notes. Good examples of this would be cues for the Death Star, Tales of a Jedi Knight, the Dianoga music, Mos Eisley Spaceport, the Jawa Sandcrawler, etc. Those were all somewhere between two, three, or four takes each. But the Princess Leia concert piece, recorded on day two, March 8th of 1977, had a whopping 13 takes. They wanted to get it right, and they took their time in doing so. That's pretty impressive for a piece that doesn't even appear in the film and looking at all the session notes princess leia's concert piece required more takes than any other piece in the entire movie they rehearsed it more recorded it more and performed it more than anything else in the film interesting comparison the main title was done in seven takes which is a very important piece of music the only other cue that comes even close to burning through so many takes in the recording session is the end title, coming in at 10 takes. So even though it's not heard as often, Princess Leia's theme is one of the most enduring pieces of Star Wars music and strikes at the musical heart of the franchise. One last wonderful thing to note about Leia's theme. It was recorded on the same day as the original binary sunset cue, the one that was later replaced. Now, this is pure speculation on my part, But after spending so much time early in the day recording such lush and romantic music like Leia's theme, I can't help but think that Leia's theme played a large part in the decision to be more lyrical and more emotional with the binary sunset piece, which they tried and abandoned on the end of that same day. Just imagine experiencing that binary alternate after sitting through 13 takes of Leia's theme before lunch. If I were George Lucas and John Williams, I'd probably react the same way. So maybe it played a small part in everyone's overall feeling that the binary sunset cue should be more lyrical, more emotional, maybe a bit more like Princess Leia. Speaking of the binary sunset, the theme that takes the cake that has the most appearances in the original Star Wars is, you guessed it, Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme, AKA the Force theme. We hear it 20 times. We hear it first when the plans are being inserted into R2, of course the binary sunset moment, and after that we just hear it nonstop. We hear it uh, when Ben reveals himself and he throw, throws back his hood after saving Luke. We hear it again when he reacts to being called Obi-Wan Kenobi. When learning about the Force. We hear it twice when the homestead is burning. We hear it when he says, I want to come with you to Alderaan. We hear it when... They escape in the Falcon. We hear hear it just so many times. We hear it when Ben decides to fall before his death. And we hear it a lot in the end of the movie. And, of course, in the throne room. This theme, the Force theme, appropriately enough, is the largest and longest theme in the film. It has the most appearances and, melodically, takes the longest to express. I want to close with an email I got from Allison. She writes, Hello, David. I'm a new listener and just started backwards to your shows. I'm halfway through the Jaws episodes, and I just needed to write you. I got so excited when you mentioned the marching band from Jaws. My whole family are huge John Williams fans. My parents took my sister and I to see him at Tanglewood a few times when we were little. And now, we still try to go every 4th of July to see him conduct the Pops, now with a baby of my own. We grew up watching Jaws a lot. Not just because it's a great movie and we love the music, but because my dad was a high schooler on Martha's Vineyard when it was filmed. He was chosen to be an extra in the movie because he was the first trombone in the high school band. He is the trombone player in the gazebo on the beach. I have a fun story that he likes to tell. All the band members were chosen, but some of them had never played together before. They were asked to play filler music the whole time, but they only knew one song. So, for two or three days, all they played was Baby Elephant Walk by Henry Mancini over and over and over. Thank you for your hard work. I'm a music teacher and am now thinking up lesson plans using your show. I teach a creative music and technology class and so many of the shows would be just perfect, not just for the kids to listen to, but I'm learning so much that I can pass on to them. Thanks again, Allie. Thank you so much for writing, Allie. And thanks to all of you who've been spreading the word about the Soundtrack Show, and to all of you who've been writing into the show at the Soundtrack Show at HowStuffWorks.com. I read every single one and try to respond as much as I can. Please drop us a line, and be sure to follow the Soundtrack Show on Facebook and Instagram at SoundtrackShowHSW or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. I'd love to chat there as well. We'll be back with more Star Wars and more soundtracks beyond Star Wars very soon. Thank you.